Welcome to Holy Fuck. Holy Fuck. Holy Fuck. Two gals on the prowl for enlightenment, sex, and all things holy. Holy Fuck. Each week, beauty alchemist and transformational coach and speaker, Catherine McClelland, and spiritual healer and life coach, Krista Kim, discuss navigating spiritual consciousness in a real human body. Stumbling through dating, relationships, and everyday life, all while maintaining a fucking sense of humor. Hey, Krista. Hey, Catherine. We are here today with a very special friend of ours. We're so... What is it? We try not to say we're so excited. but you know, <laughs> Blessed. I feel very blessed today. I feel very blessed. That's true. And I feel a little excited to have this conversation. So we're and a little nervous. <laughs> a little nervous. A little what's, nervous. What's going to happen? Yeah. So uh, this is with us today is our very good friend Sidi Ali Raja, and he made this bold act in his life by going on Facebook and saying, "Hey, y'all, I got something to say. If anybody wants to talk to me, and maybe you can clarify exactly what you said." <laughs> um, um, and so people have taken him up on that. And so we are some of those people. He is a friend of ours and also a co-student uh, in our spiritual psychological studies at the University of Santa Monica. We grew to love him dearly and he speaks eloquently and I'm sure you will enjoy this experience. Sidi, uh, Krista, you had some things to say too. Oh, I just want to welcome Sidi and... Um... I didn't. I wasn't actually in class with you as Catherine was. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting you at a very fun dance party. So <laughs> that was very fun. It was very that fun. Was very fun. And um, we connected right away. And uh, I've just enjoyed these little moments that we get to pop in with each other on Facebook and chime in on each other's posts. And I mean, really, that's the extent of our um, knowing of each other. And even with those little bits of you that I've experienced, I, um, I've always seen you as just such a bright light. And so when Catherine and I were you know, talking about like, who do we want to interview to um, amplify the Black Lives Matter um, voice, it's like both of us at the same time was like, city. And so uh, we got right on the phone afterward and threw that offer out to you and you gave a, like a very quick yes. And it's, so it's all kind of happened very quickly. So I just want to say thank you for being here and uh, take it away. What's been up? Oh, well, thank you both for having me. Uh, let the record show that, yes, I do know Catherine from a very special place because of our USM journey t- together. Uh, but the records show that, Krista Kim, I actually know you, uh, I know quite a bit about you because of this show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that part. Oh, yeah. That, that part. So, That's uh, hilarious. So, you know, yeah, you might know me from Facebook. I know you from a little more. That's funny. So, Sadi, what, um, what? Gave you the inspiration to put yourself out there so boldly on Facebook and say, I'm here, world, and I'm ready to talk. Uh, thank you for asking. So what happened, what had happened was, um, there was a friend of mine who is a, just a very powerful woman herself. Mm-hmm. And she curated some conversations, sort of an intentional conversation around race and things racial and 
you know, she wanted to be a very clear voice for just the forum, you know, like, what can we do? And one of the things that came up was taking intentional action. Like, what, mm. what can you actually do as opposed to just, you know, talking about things like what can you actually do? And one of the panelists mentioned creating a space for conversation, mm. creating a safe space for conversation, because, you know, there's so much hesitancy now, you know, what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate to say, you know, is this culture appropriation? Is this condescending? Is this trying to be a white savior? You know, or even just older, older questions like, you know, there's, there's things I've never, I've never known, you know, uh, really, or things that I have wondered, but never had the space to ask because it seemed a little rude, you know, or construed as racist, like that kind of thing. And so I had the grand idea to say, you know what? I'm going to take action. I'm going to be, you know, I'm black. I have things to say. I'm a safe space. I'm a generous listener. You know, I can be gracious and, you know, do that heart-centered you know, listening thing and all that right. stuff. Right. Thank you. You know, I was, I, was feeling, I was feeling like I could be a contribution to this conversation. And so I said, hey, you know, listen, um, in terms of forwarding things, in terms of actually being a beneficial space, you know, to healing— because for me, that's what it's all always ultimately about. It's about bringing us together and having authentic conversations um, where we can be honest, that where we can share these things, where we can be okay in our ignorance and know we won't be attacked, for instance. Yeah. Um, creates bridges. So it's like, there's no downside to that. So I said, hey, Facebook family, you know, <laughs> not that I speak for the black race, you know, I can only speak from my perspective. And if there are questions or things that you've wondered or are just, if there's things that you have wanted to know or share um, that might be within my perspective to illuminate, I'm happy to do so, you know, offering a safe space to do so. Um, now, my friends, like y'all, are mostly people who are already kind of in the tent and there's those who are not so much. So it's been, so it's <laughs> what been is that in, been like? Interesting. Oh, it's been interesting. Um, careful what you ask for, because just mine get it. Uh, no, it's mostly been awesome. It's mostly been awesome. Um, and yeah, and I've, I've had some breathing moments. <laughs> so, Tuck, can you tell us a little bit about some moments that were more challenging for you, so people could understand what they were and. Um, I think we're demonstrating sort of a opportunity where people speak carefully and kindly to each other and still ask questions. But like, what right. are some of those tricky moments? What do they sound like? And this can be from your past and your upbringing, or yeah, it can be something current right now. Well, let's see. The only ones that the only ones that are are, are challenging, honestly, are the ones where they're less about curiosity and more about I have this viewpoint and I think I'm right. So Mm. what do you think about this thing? I'm already think I'm right about, you know, that kind of Mm. thing. That's tricky. So it's, so that's, yeah, I did have one of those and it's less, that's less of a conversation and more about someone just trying to share their perspective which is not really what I asked for. Um, <laughs> not what you thought you asked for, but... That, that, that didn't seem to be... I, I got a fairly decent command of the King's English, and um, <laughs> yeah, that, that ain't what I said on my post. Like, hey, you got an opinion different than mine? Sure, I'd love to hear it. That's not really what I said. But, um, <laughs> you know, what has kind of come from that is still ultimately a space. Like, you know, 
he can share his opinion and we can talk about it and I can explain why I disagree or what aspects that I can hear where he's coming from in it and refrain from saying, hey, this sounds like Fox News talking points. I get a sense. I know what you've been watching. You know, mm. um, well, it feels like that's what that's kind of like what white people need to hear right now. It's like be in a space of curiosity and not at, and, and drop out of the defense or the trying to convince or to try to be understood. It's like white people. It's like it's not our time to be understood. It's our time to be humble and sit back and listen and just receive. You got to understand, like, yes, that is um, absolutely accurate, 100%. And you have a certain level of consciousness that allows you to say that and not necessarily feel that as some kind of threat. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are plenty of people who cannot say that, you know, where they are in consciousness, where they're on their, you know, maturity, where they're on their personal and emotional maturity. You know, they can't say, hey, this is a time for me to be humble and learn. You know, for them, it's like, yeah, well, I mean, that's wrong. But, you know, what about this other stuff? And maybe this is caused by this other thing. And, you know. Well, I have that ability now. But when I first walked into USM on day one, I did not have the humbleness or the open heart that is needed to listen to somebody else. And so, you know, I think the first skill that we learned at USM was heart-centered listening. And it was like, that was really tricky for me because it's like, what do you mean? I have to listen to someone and not speak back and not try to like convince or, you know, get them to see my way. It's really just this place of like, I'm going to love this person and just open my heart and listen. So how did, you know, did that skill, um, what was that skill like for you? I mean, that's honestly what allowed me to have this, this particular conversation, the one that I'm referencing um, Mm. is that I was like, okay, this guy just needs to be heard first. And this mm-hmm. is not necessarily about listening to not just the context of what he's saying, the content of what he's saying, not even just the context of what he's saying, but the person behind the words, you know, right. where he's coming from as a human being. You know, why is he saying these things in particular? You know, turns out he's, you know, fresh from PT. He's in pain, you know, from, you know, an injury. So he's angry and uncomfortable. So I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense, what you're saying, you know, kind of thing. And that was very much a product of my heart-centered listening skills as opposed to saying, okay, he's saying this and that sounds like some bullshit, so I'm going <laughs> to say this, that, third in response, you know, yeah, which so would be less heart-centered. <laughs> <laughs> less heart-centered. That's, that's right. the less heart-centered approach. Tiny bit. Um, so, Sidi, what would you say um, – for you in terms of the heart-centered listening, like what is it that you learned to do that was different? Like, I don't think our listeners know what heart-centered listening is, except that we can all extrapolate that you're listening from the heart. But what it what is it actually that you have to bring to that conversation that allows you to listen when someone is saying something to you that's really um, not accurate and also not easy to hear? Um, for me, it starts with intention. You know, I head into that conversation with an intention to really get the person, you know, to really hear not just what he's saying, but why he's saying it, right? Like, who's the person that feels this way, that feels moved to share this in the first place? So it's, it's about connection for me. 
Um, right. At least that's the, that's the beginning, having that clear intention in that sense. And I think when pre-USM, speaking to Chris's point earlier, pre-USM, I thought connection was about you getting me. Like, oh, and I'm, I'll share these things with you so that I'll feel understood and thus we're connected. And kind of through the work, it's been less and less about me and more and more about can I be a clear, safe space to get another and then reflect back to that person, I get you, that that is the source of connection. You know, that whole thing when people feel heard, they feel loved. You know, so could I drop into that space of really hearing who this person is, uh, where they're coming from, why they're sharing it, why it's important to them, what they hope to achieve by saying it, understand that for myself and then communicate, hey, I get you. And if I can so do that, then we're connected. So let's do this. Yeah, I hear you. So today is your turn to get heard, right? Right. This is this is what we're here for. So today, we've already connected in in the build up to the show. So we're all good and flowing. And what I'd like to do is give our audience a chance to do heart centered listening with you. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, it just brought up. Give a Leo a soapbox and say, "Speak, brother." <laughs> Audience is listening. Like, well, yeah. yeah, can you so, give us a little bit of a taste of this? like your story? Like, I don't know experience? any of your background, so I'd love to know your experience as being a black man in America. Sure, um, I am blessed in that I um well, so in black academia and black academia, there's a um, there's an idea called double consciousness, right? And the idea behind double consciousness is there is black Americans have this part of them that is intrinsically African and yet we're our culture's here and so that we're also American. And so then there's these hmm. you know, sort of not necessarily warring aspects, but sometimes there's these aspects that are that can be seemingly at odds with one another. And if they're not necessarily in conflict, they are distinct, put it that right. way. And I have the um I guess privilege of that being a very pretty distinct experience for me personally. Um, my earliest memories were of, you know, I was the black kid in class. I went to a private Christian school. Um, I think there was one girl who was mixed. And she was the one I had a little crush on, Katrina. Um, <laughs> and, you know, everybody else was white. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, the product of um, <clears throat> two professionals. My dad was an executive at GM. My mom was a nurse. You know, we built a home in the outskirts of Indianapolis. So it was a sort of privileged um, upbringing, you know, from, you know, my earliest years until third grade. Then when my parents split, uh, my mother moved to the place of her birth, which was Detroit. And even though when she was growing up there, you know, the neighborhood was completely fine, middle class, uh, our arrival just happened to coincide with the arrival of crack cocaine. So the neighborhood went into the toilet very, very quickly. So mm-hmm. I went from, you know, living on Sugar Hill, so to speak, this, again, sort of kind of uh, upper middle class neighborhood, to living in ghetto. So wow. I had the experience of, experience. you know, again, sort of speaking the King's English, you know, literally, and being bullied and picked on, like, why are you talking so funny? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. And... You know, learning to adapt, you know, because I, so I effectively grew up in Detroit and in, in a ghetto. So having sort of both sides, 
you know, that and sort of understanding, you know, how good things were, remembering how good things were, um, remembering how um, just think material things. It's it's shocking, you know, to that the level of poverty that can actually exist, you know, right under our noses. And again, I was blessed to like, I remembered having three meals a day. You know, I remembered being able to go places and, you know, do fun art projects for school and, you know, make volcanoes and things like that and have Hawaiian pineapple. And, you know, and I was going to a school where you had to, you know, where disagreements got settled on the off school ground play yards because if you fought on school grounds too many times, then you get expelled. So we just had to fight off of school grounds. So it was okay to fight across the street. So it was a completely different reality, you know. Wow. Um, and that was how I grew up. So coming from that, um, I had a, I was blessed with having a sort of a different perspective of being able to see the difference that money makes, money and class can make, see the difference in socioeconomic um, opportunity. You know, I remember when the kid across the street who was all about marching band uh, when the music program got cut and he started selling drugs, you know, mm. I remember that. Aww. Like I saw that. So things like that were were not theoretical for me; they were real. Um, and I learned to survive there. And I was very super clear that I was not going to live and die on uh, streets of Detroit. So I did what I had to do to make sure I got a college scholarship to get my tail out of there, <laughs> so I could get away. And I did. And so that's when I went into academia and uh, graduate school and, you know, graduate school again at USM and here we are. So I'm, I'm blessed in that I, I have a very sort of wide experience. You know, I have a friend um, who's also in this conversation, awesome guy, black dude. And he, he comes to the conversation with the baggage of feeling like, well, he wasn't brought up in black culture, so he doesn't quite feel black enough sometimes. You know, even though, interestingly enough, he's a super dark-skinned dude. So sometimes biracial people have that problem, but you don't usually see someone with darker skin having that problem. But yes, my dear. Sorry to interrupt you. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, I wanted if if you wanted to sort of comment on any of the decisions and choices you had to make growing up once you had shifted to the ghetto environment in Detroit— to like, what was it? Obviously, you were not meant to stay there. Obviously, you saw a different place for yourself. But what was what were you experiencing around you? Did it was it confusing? Was it frustrating? Or were you just like, I'm out of here as soon as I can, so I'm just ignoring all this stuff? What what was that experience like? Uh, you can't ignore it because it will kill you. Yeah, you know, it, it right. will kill mm-hmm. you if you don't navigate it. You know. Like, the reason you know me is because I didn't get killed on a couple of occasions where it could have went down. You know what I mean? Mm. Yes. Um, So. Can you share any of those? You know, the specifics are really important for people to hear, sweetie, even though they might seem hard to say. And I'm not asking you to tell, you know, anything that you're not comfortable with. But just what would would happen in your daily life that would um, create some of these situations? You know... I uh, I had bad coat karma, if you can believe this. <laughs> I had bad I had bad coat karma, and by that I mean Detroit's fucking cold, right? Yeah. It's fucking cold in Detroit, um, and 
you know, I, I like fashion. I like feeling like I look good. You know, <laughs> you know I'm a Leo preener. You know, I just need to clarify. Are you saying coat with a T or Coke with a K? Coat. I thought he was saying Coke, <laughs> like his bad oh, Coke yeah. karma. And I'm like, that, ooh, this is going to be a good story. <laughs> is that is that we projecting you, Miss Kim? <laughs> is there some projection going well, on? Well, you did say there was a lot of Coke coming into Detroit. So that's, you know. <laughs> okay. Coat, coat karma. Got it. Okay. It was cold in Detroit. Cold. A that's when I kind of snow. Well, when okay. he said that, I was like, huh, maybe I heard that wrong. <laughs> Unless I've never done Coke, but then I was like, well, maybe Coke keeps you really warm in the winter. <laughs> okay. So, coat it back karma. to CD. Tea like tango. Thank you for clarifying. That was definitely a different context. <laughs> so it's a whole different story if you're thinking of talking about the other kind of C word. No, code karma. Um, you know, I feel like I liked feeling like I look good. Um, one thing about growing up in a ghetto, there's a there's a there's a bad joke that, that people in a ghetto play on themselves without realizing. Everybody knows you don't have any money, right? That's why you live there. Um, nobody likes admitting it, and no one likes walking around uh, advertising it. So how you look, how you present yourself, the clothes you wear is a big deal. Um, now again, it's it's pathetic because you have people spending money on shoes when they're eating welfare cheese, you know, kind of thing. But it's real. Not just not just baseline shoes. We're talking expensive no. shoes. Yeah, That's what you're talking shoes. about, right? right. Expensive yeah. shoes, you know, that they're going to grow out of in a couple of years because they're still growing because of kids. But yeah, like that was a reality. You know, there's the yeah. idea. Like that's that's a whole other conversation about the idea of consumerism and. You know, its effect on the dis- disadvantaged because, um, mm. you know, they see the same commercials that we do. Like the idea of if you have this, you are good. You know, people who cannot even hope to aspire to have that still see those commercials just like, you know, the intended audience sees those commercials and they get the same messages. So it creates right. things like that. So for me, you know, I'm, I, had a, I had a thing for coats because, you know, I liked looking good while I was being warm because I also hate being cold. And there were a couple of occasions where... I, uh, well, there was one occasion where I got my coat stolen from me. Um, I was trying to think of how to actually put it because basically these, uh, group of kids were trying to lure me into their group by asking me, Hey, do you have change? Do you have change for a dollar, a bus ticket or something like that? Um, but there's a group of kids I didn't know. So I was like, "Mm, no, I don't. And so I kept on my business and then, um, you know, they, I hear a bunch of footsteps running up behind me to this day, to this day, when I hear footsteps running up behind me, like, you know, I have a moment. Um, so I hear footsteps running up behind me and I turn, one of them hits me. So my glasses go off my face and then they surround me. And they tell me to take off my coat. Now it's wintertime. It is freezing. Mm-hmm. I'm on the way to, ironically enough, my doctor's office via the bus. So I'm like, and I'm 13 miles from home, no car. And I look at them, you know, my glasses are over here, so I'm, all, I'm not sure if they're broken. I count them, like there's six of them, so I'm like, God damn it, there's too many to fight, you know? <laughs> Thank God. So I was like, Arr. you know, and I, you know, and the, the aggressor, I was like, you know, come out the coat, come out the coat. And I, I wanted to punch him so bad. I wanted to punch him so bad. But, you know, six on one, those aren't good. And my back was to a fence. So, you know, it wasn't good odds, so I took off my coat. And I was just seething. You know, mm. just seething. And I still went to the doctor, you know, without a coat, just <laughs> sitting on the bus on <laughs> a coat. 
in the wintertime. The doctor actually gave me a coat when I asked him what happened because he's like, so what? what's going on? Um, which yeah. was kind of him. That was um, so I, I treated myself after that experience. I treated myself to um, an even nicer coat, which might have not been the best idea. But I said, you know what? I really, you know, I really like that coat, but I'm going to get myself something even better. And I did. And I was standing on the porch of a friend's home one evening. A car goes by that I don't, you know, just a bunch of guys that don't really know. Um, don't, you know, but the vibes were wrong. Um, but I didn't really think much about it. Just didn't think anything about it. Talking with a friend, talk with a friend. A little while later, car comes back. Right when I see it, I see a kid already jumping out of the car with the shotgun. And he points it at me and he says, come out of the coat. And I look at him. And he's standing, because he comes up to me. He's got the shotgun pointed at my chest. He's looking, and I'm looking at him. And he's within arm's reach, right? He's standing too close to me. The gun is within arm's reach. And it was a, a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun. So it was easy to conceal. Whoa. Right. Um, but that means, again, he's, so he's right there. And I look at him, and I'm furious. I am infuriated. Right, and he sees me seething, so he says, "Don't curl your lip up at me." <laughs> he actually said that, and I haven't committed to it yet. I haven't started unbutting my coat. Like I'm sitting there thinking about it because I'm like, "He's in arm's reach. I could hit the gun, you know." Uh, but at this range, if he gets a hand on the trigger, it's game over, you know. Like I really didn't want to give up the coat. I love the coat. But he's standing too close to me. I have a shot. I could take, I could, you know. But I thankfully I noticed, I noticed that he had taped up the pump. He put duct tape on the pump and duct tape on the handle. And you do that so that your grip doesn't slip, you know, in the snow when it gets slick. So you do that on a gun that you plan to fire, you know. Mm. So that's a gun that's meant to be shot. That's not a that's not a for show gun. That's not a, I'm gonna pretend I'm gonna take this play gun and, and rob you, you know. And because I noticed that, I didn't take my shot and I took off my coat. I gave it to him. You know, and that's why y'all know me. Because had he pulled the trigger, I would not be here. And that's my life. That was my life back then. So yeah, there's the level of violence, you know, I don't remember how many fist fights I was in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um just because that was how disagreements got handled, especially when you were younger. Then when weapons came into the, came into play about middle school, then it got a bit dicier. But yeah, there's there's no ignoring it. <laughs> you yeah. learn to adapt it, or you don't survive it. Typically, yeah. How um, would you say? How would you say those experiences changed you did it take you a while to I mean do you feel like you've you know like I guess maybe that's really the question like how the systemic sense of the no escaping that environment until you had the one out of going to college how did how did that like you said you still remember the feet running up the sound of feet running up behind you and and in your experience like being sequestered as a young black man, you know, in a society that was just that, basically, once you were in the ghetto, right? Instead of going to the school where there were white kids and black kids and, you know, all sorts of things. How did all that begin to affect your outlook? Um, you know, 
the thing again, I'm I was blessed in that even in the middle of this, I knew something else existed. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I want to go give to others, you know, because I did have Sugar Hill, you know, before we moved in the ghetto, you know. Right. So I did have the experience of like, life doesn't have to be like this. You know, things don't have, there are other people that don't live quite this way. So for me, I I knew there was an out. And so I had the clear intention, like, you know, the scholarship didn't just kind of fall in my lap. Like I, I looked yeah. for, you know, the best scholarship I could find for the school that I wanted to go to, you know, I found what it was and I, you know, did everything I could do to get it and I got it. Um. So it was very much, again, a function of intention, but having the space to recognize the possibility, you know, was the way in which I was blessed. Um, But to speak to your other question in terms of what it does, I mean, do have, and this is one of the things I had, uh, one of the points I made with the person I was talking to um, before who, you know, his position was about black on black crime, ironically enough, you know, and Mm -hmm. his, um, one of the things he shared was, you know, doesn't that create an environment for police to suspect black people because, you know, black people are committing crimes to so many black people all the time, you know, which is a racist thing to say. Um, not that he intended it that way, because plenty of white people create, have crimes with other white people, plenty of Asian people have crimes, you know, like crime isn't racially specific. <laughs> no, so, it's not. So to say, well, you know, there are a lot of black criminals who do things to other black people, so maybe that's why the police are, you know, suspicious of them. Like that's that's a pretty awful position to have. And that's, again, that's not really what he meant, but that's in the ballpark. Um, and one of the things I I shared with that, in reference to that, um, is the obvious, like context. You know, like I'm not a black on black criminal person. You know, I haven't committed crime against white people. I haven't committed a crime since Asian people. I haven't committed a crime against Hispanic people. Like, I'm not a criminal. And yet I'm still, I've still had the experience of being regarded as one because I'm black, you know, by law enforcement. And it's just one of the things that comes with being a black man in America. Um, So what I would say is that even though I grew up around criminals who did deserve to be regarded as criminals because they were engaged in criminal activity every day, I understood where the criminal behavior came from. You know, I understood the context um, of what was available to us. I knew what it was to, again, see someone's outlet in life be taken away from him through no fault of his own. And when we live in a ghetto, he's surrounded by drug dealers. He started doing what they did, kind of thing. Um, so it's it's it creates for me. It creates a broader perspective. You know, not that I'm big on excusing people's choices because we all get to make choices. We all get to be adults and create our lives accordingly. That is our point of power in my view is I'm an adult. I get to make choices. Um, What I would say is that those choices are made for a reason. I was willing to, I was willing to die for my coat, you know, Mm -hmm. on the steps of the day. I was willing to risk my life. (laughs) I was willing to risk my life because of a coat, you know, and Um, that kind of thinking, you know, that kind of thinking, I understand. Sorry, go ahead. That's really profound. That's really powerful. What, um, Sidi, what do you, do you attribute your 
I'm assuming choice not to engage in a lot of criminal and drug related activity to your early childhood to, you know, we just felt like you, I'm just trying to see if there's anything else there that you felt like was actually a gift that you brought. Was there a way that you influenced the people around you differently? I knew I wasn't in a strange way. I knew I wasn't them. Like I never had, I knew I had Mm -hmm. to fit in. I knew I had to sort of belong. I had to get along, you know, with people on the block. And so that looked like, I mean, I would literally like, I would, if there were, when there were breaks, you know, so, okay, spring break is coming up. I'm going to need to start, you know, spending some more time with the guys on the block so that when spring break happens and then, you know, there's no school to go to and I'm just around them all the time, like, it's cool and we're cool. Like, I'd, I'd plan these things. It was a very deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I was planning it was because I knew I wasn't, I wasn't the same. You know, on some level, I knew... You know, I, was, I wasn't going to stay there. I wasn't going to, like I said, I was super clear I wasn't going to live and die on Stopa Street. You know, that was not, not going to be my, my particular path. Part of that, I'm sure, was upbringing. Um, you know, my mom didn't really kick it with the neighbors. You know, she kind of kept herself sort of separate because, you know, they'd be on the porch and they'd drink and they'd fight and then they'd, you know, argue and then they'd next night be out drinking and <laughs> same thing over and over again. Um, you know, my mom never participated in that. And so I think that did partly, you know, kind of create like an us-them sort of thing um, mentality. But yeah, just also just in my head, I just never, I never bought into this is my life, you know. Um, I still so had I to survive a, my life. Yeah. But yeah. Right. Go ahead, Krista. So I just then have a question of, you know, when you walk into USM for the first time and it's, you know, a lot of times there's like 300 people in a room and it's, I think, predominantly white what was your experience walking into an environment like that um you know i i have to backtrack a little bit because i do have an awesome story around that it was pre-usm but it is spiritual the spiritual path Mm -hmm. um because you're absolutely right in that respect um for me the big aha moment happened the first time i went to uh this church uh agape Mm. which to me sounded you know to my ear, it sounded like vaguely African. I didn't know anything about it. You know, I heard about it from an Afro hippie type, you know, dreadheaded jazz musician that I knew, that I had a crush on. Um, always a woman. There's always a girl. <laughs> there's, all, there's always a girl. Why do men do anything? There's a woman involved somewhere in there. Why do, women, why do men make changes in their lives? There's, there's a woman involved somewhere. Um, so, yeah, the woman I was into at the time mentioned this place. Knew nothing about it. And so I went. And this is fairly soon after I came uh, here to California. Um, and after I left Detroit, I went to Atlanta uh, for my undergrad at, at a Morehouse, a historically black college. So I went oh. from everybody's black in Atlanta, everyone's black in Detroit, to almost everybody's black in Atlanta. And then I came out here. So um, I walk into Agape. Or first, I walk up to Agape, and I don't know what to make of this place because I see the you know little old black ladies with the giant hats, you know, and then I see like hip white guys with like torn jeans, and then I see you know women that look like actresses, you know. So I just see this giant eclectic you know group of people going to this one place. I mean, no idea what it's. I was expecting a bunch of hippies sitting around with like incense or something, <laughs> you know, in a circle. So I didn't know what it was. Walk into this place a little bit late. This um. Usher, who's a middle-aged white guy in a suit, walks up to me, puts both hands on my shoulders, 
leans over, leans into me, and he says something into my ear. To this day, I don't know what the hell he said. Because to me, I was absolutely shocked that this white man who doesn't know me from Joe, you know, sees this black man. And I was not like ghettoed out, but I was not wearing church clothes. I was wearing like my Detroit Pistons jacket and, you know, <laughs> like I was, you know, a little still with the urban, coats, urban right? hip hopper. Still with the coats. Still with the coats. <laughs> still with the coats. Glad you noticed that. <clears throat> and he saw me and still felt comfortable enough to put both his hands on me and get into my personal space and say something to me just because of the context of where I was, that he felt that comfortable because of where we were, not knowing me. That blew my mind because Mm -hmm. to me, that's not the world that existed. You know, that wasn't the world I lived in, you know. Those people who don't know Agape is a spiritual center. Yeah, spiritual center. Um, And so that told me a lot about how race can disappear in a spiritual context. You know, and I'd never, I'd never had that. I'd never had that person. But that, that was because he didn't see a black guy. He didn't see a young black kid who, young black man and, you know, hip hop attire and baggy clothes and all that. He just saw another person going to agape in the spiritual community that he was probably telling me, oh, we'll seat you when the prayer is over, something like that. But does day I didn't hear it. <laughs> City, I have such a question around this. I'm so excited you just said that. Because one of the biggest complaints people are lodging uh, right now is that when people, when white people say, oh, I don't see color, um, it's frustrating to um, at least some of the black voices that I'm hearing. It's like, that's not true. You must see color. And if you say you don't see it, it means you're oblivious to the issues of race. And and so I personally am curious about this mm-hmm. because I 100% know that when you're talking about the University of Santa Monica or Agape, both places I've spent a ton of time, um, that I've had that experience where there is, I have, I mean, yes, I see the cultural impact of what I see as a black culture, which I totally love, especially in a church. Like it mm-hmm. just gave me such richness in my life that I was my little white Episcopalian self never given in a, in a um, spiritual setting, which was just blew my mind. And was, I was so, it was so powerful to me. So I would say I saw the color and the context and the culture, but I had no what is the word? It was like there's there's no barrier to it right. in that context. Right. So I would love for you to speak to that conversation if you could. Mm. Happy to. Happy to. So the thing that I have personally heard when people say, you know, I don't I don't see color, I don't see you as black, I don't see you as this or that. The times where people take offense to that, in my experience, mm-hmm. have to do with the context. You know, context is everything. Right. So, for instance, um, someone might, this isn't completely hypothetical, but I'm trying to be respectful. Um, <laughs> there was someone I knew once who might have had right, this experience. Someone I know who at one point in time might have, for instance, said something like, well, I don't really see you as black talking to me. I don't really see mm-hmm. you as black. You know, I don't really think of myself as white. You know, we're just two men, you know, making choices and doing what we can do in life you know, kind of thing. Now, that could be fine, except the context where he's saying that is 
you know, we're both men. My life is a function of my choices, cultural um, privilege or cultural um, disadvantage doesn't exist. Like that's Uh the context that he's speaking from that from. So that's why he's like, well, no, I'm not just, I'm not a white man. You're not a black man. We're just two men, you know? So it's, even though it's, uh, he may see himself in that way and he may see me not necessarily racially first, what he's also disregarding are the cultural um, realities that we both live in, you know? So it's kind of, so it's a convenient sort of way of dismissing a larger conversation. Now, mm. in the spiritual context, um, where people are, in my experience, seeking to grow together, you know, seeking to grow as humans, that context gets transcended, you know. So it isn't that I don't see, like, I'll never forget, um, I was doing a different self work thing. I was doing it in a landmark, actually, it was in a landmark at the time. And I'll never forget the first, you know, white guy that I thought about playing matchmaker with the black woman before. And, you know, again, growing up, that was hugely taboo. You know, like, forget about it. You know, forget Mm -hmm. about it. You know, race mixing, like, oh my God. My mother used to be mortified at the idea of her sons ending up with white women. You know, Mm -hmm. like, that was just terrible. And so the idea that, oh, I see Johnny as just a good man. And, oh, I see her as just a good woman. Hey, I wonder if they could do, you know. So, no, I wasn't seeing their race, racist necessarily. But it's not because I was disregarding the context of he's a Jewish white man and she's an African-American woman. It was, I see them, I see their souls as people, you know, even beyond that. I see their personalities. I see their wants, their desires, their dreams, their ways of being in the world. And I see resonance. Mm. You know, and so that trumped, you know, sort of the the old sort of cultural taboos that I had had myself around possibly putting them together. So it's it's like many things with race. It's complicated, you yeah. know, when people say, well, I don't see you as this. I don't see you color. I don't see like, because, yeah, that can, there are contexts where that's completely fine, where that's com- not just fine, where that's admirable. You know, like I don't I don't necessarily walk around like, hey, I'm black. You know, but and <laughs> and beautiful, but don't, over, I'm not gonna mention that. <laughs> and when I get pulled over, you know, I am very cautious, you know, yeah. because I know he sees me as black, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Does that support? Is that? Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think one of the most helpful things is is there is confusion in this conversation because the history is is so important and what's currently happening because of our history is so important but when we talk about a spiritual time we talk about a present moment that's clearly only right now Mm. there is no history in that moment but that doesn't mean that the context of your life isn't surrounded by all the other history that actually does exist in order for you to have the same advantages in order for you to have the same opportunities, even when you're pulled over by a cop, to be given the same level of respect as someone else. Someone uh, told me a story yesterday that a friend of theirs that's black, as soon as he gets pulled over, always puts his hands out the window of the car, both of them, so that he can never it can never be said that a cop thought he was reaching for something or anything else. And he's just 
Like that's how his, that's sort of his peace plan is to protect himself that way. It helps to have a peace plan. <laughs> it helps yeah, to have it a sounds like plan. you had one too, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, again, it's, it's the realities. Um, it is a reality of being black in America. And what's interesting is that people don't know it, you know? People don't know it. And that's a shame that you have to have it in the first place. Yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing about that, though. Like, it is a shame. And it's been um, something that's been, except for my speaking for myself. Yeah, it's a shame. It's absolutely a shame. I mean, I was in in Westwood, not exactly a high crime area. No. Um, (laughs) In a BMW. True story. Um, and a cop pulls up behind me. And I had, first reaction was one of fear. You know, I just felt like, ooh, there's a cop behind me. Not doing anything wrong. <laughs> right? But just the cop behind me. First thought was fear. And then I said, you know, post-spiritual, post-USM, all that stuff. I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this frown upside down. You know? <laughs> so, you know, I look in the, you know, I look in the rear view. I look back at him. I, like, start sending him good vibes. And I start sending his family good vibes. You know, may they be safe from worry, you know, from him being out there putting his life online. I feel great about it. Light turns green. He lights me up. <laughs> Pulls me over anyway. <laughs> True story. So, you know, I pull over. Um, he says, um, turn, turn, make sure you turn your car off. So I turn my car all the way off. Roll down your windows, all your windows. So roll down all my windows so we can like see what's, you know, so we can clearly see what's in the car, who's not in the car, and what's in the car. Um, his tone is friendly, but his manner is very cautious. So he comes over, hand right on his gun, and says, um, your brake light is out. You know, can you see your uh, driver's license and your proof of insurance and registration? So I move very slowly. <laughs> Getting my stuff out, you know, keeping both of my hands, making no sudden moves, both my hands are visible at all times. While I'm getting this stuff out, he says, so where are you going? You know, and I was going to work. So I tell him, oh, yeah, where do you work? You know, I tell him, oh, yeah, what do you do there? You know, I tell him, how long have you been working there? You know, I tell him. He says, um, yeah, have you ever been arrested? I was like, yeah, been. Uh, are you on probation? No, no, probation. Uh, wow. Got any drugs, alcohol, or illegal firearms and substances in the car? You know, so ask me all this while I'm getting an information because of a brake light, you know, in Westwood while I'm driving a BMW. So, wow. You know, I give it to him, and I'm like, that doesn't really sound like uh, brake light to me. No. You know, so he goes and gets his stuff. Um, he comes back now legally. I actually didn't have to tell him any of that because it's not his right. business. But right. you know, he's got his hand on his gun. I'm going to tell him. Right. Um. He comes back, thanks me for having my stuff in order. I'm like trying to have my hands from not shaking too, obviously. Uh, and he um, and he doesn't write me a he doesn't write me a fix it ticket. So I'm like, okay. So he's trying to make an amends for you know the racially profiling questionnaire. So you know I I like chat with him for a minute and you know I actually just like shake his hand and tell him you know hey be safe out there you know that whole thing. I drive him away. I forget about it. Next day I said, oh wait, I gotta do that brake light thing. So I go check the brake lights. They Never. all work fine. <laughs> they all work fine. You know. Wow. And that's that's reality. That's that's the reality of being a black man in, you know, America. Again, Westwood. We're not in Compton, not in Inglewood, not in, you know, not in a bad neighborhood. 
I'm driving a BMW. I'm not, I'm, I'm sitting at a stoplight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm at a stoplight when he saw me and okay, he still so pulled me over. I, I'm sorry, but we just have to take the opportunity right now to just say, I'm sorry. I'm like, I just, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, so not staging this, but it's like, I know I could be afraid when a cop pulls me over and they never treat me like that. And I'm just so sorry, City, that you're in that position and that I know that, and that this is the harder one to take responsibility for, is that the privileges that I've allowed to be in my life in some ways have built that system. And I just want to say that I am more and more aware and I'm more and more concerned and I'm more and more unwilling to be a part of that in whatever way I can stop being willing, you know, in, in any day that I can choose to challenge the situation and the context that you are in now. I mean, it's horrifying to me. And yet I have to say I have some responsibility here. And I apologize and I don't know what else to say except bless you and thank you that you have the inner insight to keep yourself safe and to know how to deal with people who are not being honorable to you and not respecting your humanity and not caring for you. And, and they have no right to that, you know, and um, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you for telling us that story. It really just touched my heart. And uh, that's why you're doing this talking so that we can really see and hear you. Thank you. Yeah, it is. And again, bless your sweetheart. You know, bless your sweetheart. My personal opinion, personal perspective, again, not speaking for the black race, but my personal opinion is that I appreciate you know, you hearing and getting, because yeah, that's fucked up, right? It's so fucked up. <laughs> that's fucked up. You know, and not you know, you fuck. didn't, you didn't. It's not not in, not in a holy fuck way either. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my my invitation for people like yourself who like hear that, like, yeah, that's fucked up. You know, the the remorse and the the discomfort with that reality with those with that reality that gets played out you know every day is to channel it you know i don't want you to feel bad for yourself i don't want you to feel you're not you have taken you've been privileged by a system uh, that you didn't set up right um it's something that predates you and even though it's something that you've inherited um it is not through your efforts and so now you do, you have the opportunity to do something about it, you know? Um, so my, my invitation, because I, I mean, people have, like I tell that story and people are like shocked and, you know, or, you know, there's another, most black men have a few <laughs> cop right. stories. Of and I've had course. awesome, I've had awesome experiences with law enforcement as well. Not as many, but they do happen, you know, so it's not necessarily black and white. Um, but there's plenty of, plenty of tales that we could all tell. Um, my point ultimately is I love that you care, you know, and I don't want that feeling to be spent um, in the 
bearing down and oh my God, I can't believe I've been benefiting from this. You know, I've been this privileged person, ah, you know, the feeling bad about aspect. It's been in the more the more doing aspect. I'm not saying that you you are, but as more and more I see, you know, how people respond to that story or you know, there's another <laughs> there's another story where we were um I was in Santa Clarita, again another nice neighborhood, and there were road closures and there was a, a sheriff's deputy, female, in her car. Um and people were kinda like not knowing what to go and and I saw her talking to a couple and like point in some direction and they're smiling and it's like, Oh, I'm gonna ask her for directions too. That's awesome. <laughs> and I go I go over to ask her directions. She's like, just, just like they were. And she sees me, you know, gets out of her car and puts a hand near her gun. <laughs> you know. Um and I'm like, I was just gonna ask you for directions, just like the nice couple that you were just talking to. And yeah, it just so happens that she was white. They happen to be white. I'm not. Only perceive, only perceived difference, right? So like things like that. And I, I literally, I put my hands up and I said, "I'm just gonna ask you directions." You know, like don't shoot me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but things like that happen, and the beauty in sharing the stories like that is you do get to recognize it and you do get to educate yourself because people don't even know that that kind of things happen you know and I love that it happens to me because I'm such a good guy and most people know me like I'm such a good guy and I'm not immune you know kind of thing because it's not about who I am it's about what I look like for some people Um, that's about yeah perception and Sudhi I really want to appreciate what you just said and um, what one of the things that we did learn a lot in USM was forgiveness and self-forgiveness being something big. And mm. also mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. beautiful ability to forgive back in the history, to heal our history, mm-hmm. to, to forgive our ancestors. And it's a tricky place for white people. I've heard this conversation. It's happened twice now around me where I actually believe that white people should forgive themselves so they can be done with it and then be helpful rather than what you were just saying about feeling guilty and carrying this baggage of like, oh, shit, how did we do this? Mm-hmm. You know, instead, it's like if we forgive ourselves, then we can move on and be helpful. If we wait for Black culture to forgive us, we're holding our, our progress like hostage Like, why should you forgive me yet? You might, but you don't have to. But if I could forgive myself and then speak more strongly and be more powerful and be more loving and then do reparations, do whatever actually needs to happen to change the world. I'm wondering what your thought about that is because someone was very offended by this conversation at Black Women I know, Mm -hmm. feeling, feeling that if I forgave myself, then then I would somehow no longer be part of helping or something. I, it was a confusion, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the key word that I hear in that is forgiveness. Like, what does forgiveness actually mean? And how does that land for people? You know, like, so some people say, like, oh, yeah, great. You know, yeah, you can say you forgive yourself, Catherine, and, you know, move into self-forgiveness and how does that help me in my life? And all these horrors and atrocities and things that keep going on. Like, there's a there's a way to hear that as a convenient out. 
right? Right. Um, from which someone's going to be like horribly offended, especially when they don't have the context of what you mean by forgiveness. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, that makes sense. Because now somebody who has experience with forgiveness, like I know what you mean by that, you know, because we have had such deep processes of working through self-forgiveness. And the fact, the fact remains, which again is, is, is ironic, actually. The fact remains that the more guilt that, say like a, a white person, say take yourself, the more guilt yeah. you carried with you as you did things, as you tried to you know, be a part of the positive uh, tide turning, guilt still reinforces the judgment that started in the first place. So you're not fully moving forward. It's kind of like how one thing I, I came across recently, someone, um, a white person said, you know, is it okay to do the fist in the air sign? You know, mm-hmm. when we go to, you know, we go to marches, is it okay as a poor white person to do that? And <clears throat> someone actually flipped out on him about it because he said, even though that question was from a very, you know, I'm, I want to be respectful place. And, you know, I associate that with, you know, black power. You know, someone says, hey, listen, if you're looking at a, a, a physical action that's been performed throughout history, you know, by all different kinds of cultures and by all different folks, if you're looking at that as a racial thing that one race gets to do and another doesn't, you're in part looking, you're in part reinforcing the problem in the first place that the races are themselves separate. You know, so like, even though that was something, that was a question that was asked from a, from a genuine place, a, a place that's really trying to be respectful, there was probably guilt around the idea of, I don't, I don't want to also appropriate culture. You know, if that's a black power thing, I don't want to be doing it too. Which again, sounds cool, except that what you're talking about is a human thing, you know, mm. that gets sort of reduced to racial terms. Like, yeah, if you're talking about, you know, Dressing up like Huey Newton and putting the beret and the you know the black fist and you know the black uh, the black gloves the black leather gloves and you know you're trying to pretend to be a black panther that's one thing, but you know the fist fist being raised is you know again a human thing throughout ages throughout for humanity, so there can be a dynamic of carrying the guilt forward and creating more division you know when the judgments have not been resolved. No, but again, you can't really say that to a person who doesn't really understand what you mean by forgiveness, because it sounds like, oh, easy for you to say, Miss Catherine, you're just going to forgive yourself for being white, and you know, I'm still got my problems. <laughs> you know, it's back right. to context. But that's actually part of the interview that um, I watched that you were listening to the other day. That was one of my biggest takeaways when the moderator um, she said that it's you know that she was talking about responsibility versus shame and blame and justification. And um, I thought it was really powerful when she said it's so ineffective to sit in the blame and the shame energy because ultimately it's just a waste of energy. Yeah, but I agree. we know that that is only a waste of energy. Well, if it's not healed, like people still have to go through the healing part of the blame and shame, or then they're just spiritually bypassing it. So people like us who've done a lot of um, spiritual work, it's like, yes, we know it's a waste of energy to sit in the shame and blame, but we've also done a lot of work in healing it and we're constantly forgiving and the judgments and the hurts and the traumas. But somebody who's never 
done any work around blame and shame, there, I, I mean, I feel like there still is opportunity for them to look at themselves first before just jumping into, well, that's a waste of energy. I feel like there needs right. to be a bridge between there. It's a process, I would imagine. You know, feel the feelings, right? Feel the feelings, be in the experience. It's about, I agree with Magalie, who said, don't stay there, you know. But yeah, be there, be there and be real about it. Um, you know, be in the outrage, be in the, I would too, you know, I would too. I, I have... I fought like cats and dogs um, when um, like I first saw like homophobia, like actually really saw homophobia, mm-hmm. you know, in in person. Um, you know, being a straight man who has no, I didn't think I didn't even think I had gay friends at the time. Um, I just knew it was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I just knew it was wrong. So, and I, I had my feelings about it, and I let my feelings be known about it, and yeah, we got into it. I got into it with some friends, and we're not friends anymore. Uh, because of it mm. and that's okay you know that's completely okay because I, I agree with you that's it's it's not necessarily about bypassing it's about being in the outrage and doing whatever there is to be done about it because um, that's what gets really tricky with spirituality and right. any big topic like this it's um, people get offended by people coming out and saying oh I'm sending you love I'm just going to sit and meditate for you and Right. You know, it's all good and peace and we're all one. It's like, right, right. you know, ultimately, yes, that's true, but we have to have this moment of feel the feels and work with, you know, the stuff that's underlying underneath the surface. And then you can transcend into the, yes, we're all one and we see no color, but, you know, there's some, there's some steps that have to be taken. Yeah, every step. And everyone is not at every step. That's another thing. Right. Every every person who hears that message is not necessarily going to be on that step with you. Um, it no. does. Again, I think that's where heart centered listening comes into play. You know, yeah. I mean, it does serve, in my opinion, to respect where other people are. You know, and to really hear them, and to endeavor to really hear them, especially if they disagree with what I'm saying or where I'm at. You know, like I had a friend the other day post a picture of Donald Trump, an unironic picture of Donald Trump, and talk about how she's sending him love and light and, you know, he's a divine being and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, she got torn torn to pieces, you know, (laughs) for doing that. Um, Now, I think her biggest crime was just being tone deaf, you know, not listening. It's not that she was necessarily inaccurate in the broadest, biggest sense. And when the world is burning... And this person is is not uh, addressing it, and in a way that's effective and is actually you know making the problem worse. You know, talking about sending him love and light and how he's a divine being and all that isn't in step with you know her community in that respect because she wasn't listening. Is that context meaning like if you were in agape and in a room full of spiritual beings and who you know whoever was leading that service were to call that type of energy and say those words, would it be taken differently in that context versus just someone spitting it out there on Facebook? I think intent matters. You know, I think intent matters. Um, you know, I remember, for instance, you know, after 9-11 happened, you know, people went to church and we were talking about, you know, the, the minister did talk about blessing our, you know, very sick, you know, sick Muslim brothers, you know, who did, who did those things. And, you know, there were a couple of people who couldn't, who couldn't hear that. You know, got up and walked out, mm-hmm. um, and that's okay. You know, because they weren't they weren't there yet. 
but the intent was not one of bypass. You know, the intent was not one of, you know, God bless America. It was one of God bless the world. But from a real place, we get to go through this together. And this <laughs> is terrible. And we're here to support each other through this, you know, um, tragedy, this atrocity, you know, that yeah. cost so many lives. But it was from an authentic place. It wasn't a position I'm taking. It wasn't contrarian. You know, I think that was another thing that was going on with her. It was she was right. kind of like, well, these people are doing that. I'm going to do this other thing, right? You know, so yeah, context now, matters. Sudi, so just to um, kind of wrap us up, and you know, um, kind of, <laughs> I, I feel like emotionally and mentally and everything we've been all over today, and it's I'm just so Blown grateful. by. It's so, I'm so grateful because this is what is required. We have to ask these weird questions and, and, you know, find ourselves in the little wormholes and find ourselves back. And, you know, the one thing that I recognize so is so big right now in the culture for everyone is fear. Sure. So much fear, you know, uh, all my white friends are afraid. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing or being the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And they love to be helpful and to be kind and they're backing into stupid things they can't see and their context is all wrong and, you know, everybody's making mistakes. And I just, I, um, at the same time, it's nowhere near the level of confusion and fear that I believe exists in a systemic system that has held a group of people down for four or 500 years and the debility that comes from that, you are definitely um, an anomaly in that system, and you bring a lot of light and a lot of um, a lot of light and a lot of beauty to this conversation. And you're articulate, and so people can hear you. And I really hope, I just hope that this has been something that has been nourishing for you, because it certainly has been for us. Oh, beautiful. And, um, I hope for our audience to just be able to rest in this calm conversation that went wherever it went to give your voice the honor and respect it deserves uh, as you speak your truth and address questions. And I just, I just want to notice that there is not fear in this space with us right now. Mm -hmm. There is love and there is peace and there is generosity and kindness and Absolutely. you've been generous, <laughs> and we've tried to be generous <laughs> in whatever ways so. we have. And so. the forgiveness conversation is powerful, and this seeing the loving essence in the people around us and heart-centered listening, thank you for being a voice to that. Absolutely. I mean, that is ultimately what I feel will carry us forward, carry us through, is really getting each other. I mean, mm. there's the difficult roads to um, kind of travel through this. I mean, it certainly wasn't comfortable, which is what I said in the Facebook group, Facebook uh, posting. It's not comfortable to be like, hey, ask a black man. I'm black. Ask me stuff. You know, like that feels ridiculous, you know, in mm -hmm. one sense. And at the same time, you know, it is it is better for me to talk to people who don't necessarily get where I'm coming from. And it is good for me to recognize, hey, this woman is a mother. You know, this woman is a daughter. This woman is just like me, you know, in terms of caring for other people, having hopes, having dreams. 
you know, seeing the loving essence, as you said. You know, same with the guy I was telling you about, you know, that sees me as man and sounds like he has his doubts about white privilege and that kind of thing. Like at the end of the day, he's just another human being, you know, another beautiful soul, ultimately, trying to make his way through the world the best he can. And for me to understand that, to speak to him in that way, um, for him to experience being heard in that way by someone who looks like me, is it my responsibility? No, necessarily. And does it serve the ultimate purpose for what I am standing, which is us being stronger together? Yes. Hmm. So does it serve me to put aside my righteousness in this particular context so that he can hear what the hell I have to say? Yes. You know, and navigating all of that. Do I want to do it every day? Hell the fuck no. <laughs> you know? Right. And oh, my God. That's a hell fuck, right? It's <laughs> a holy fuck. Right. Hell the, all the fuck way no. There. Hell the fuck no. And, you know, it's, it's all right. This, this is how we get there. This is how it we is get how there. we get there. And thank this you for your generosity there. and your love. And we just so appreciate you today. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We you. love you, we love you, we love you. And you as we you. say to our audience, spread the love. Spread the love. It's all about the love, baby. Thank you. All love. about the love, really baby. Really awesome. Appreciate you both. Thanks, City. Thanks, City. Thank you so much. And thank you for our audience for listening generously, too. Mwah. Mwah. I don't blow kisses. <laughs>